Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello and happy new year, lads and lasses. Uh, For those of you who celebrate, I hope everyone enjoyed the holidays. And I'm coming out of the gate hot this year, 2022, talking all about metabolic health. So today is going to be part one of a three-part series about metabolic health. I'm going to tell you at the beginning of this video of like why or this, this audio of why it's so important and why if this is not something you have considered yet, you absolutely should. And then I'm going to answer questions that came to me from Instagram. So in today's video specifically, I'm going to chat about more of the like the high blood sugar insulin picture. So what does high blood sugars and insulin have to do with weight loss and what you should consider if weight loss is a goal? I'm going to talk about the link between insulin and COVID, uh, citing a newer study. And then um, menopause. That was a question that came in about perimenopause and menopause and why does it cause so much struggle to your metabolic health? And then finally, somebody wrote in, they had been intermittent fasting for a year and then their labs came back that they were in a pre-diabetic range. What the hell? What gives? So I am answering all of these questions in today's episode. And if you are looking to get your health house in order, if you're looking to support metabolic health, if you're listening to some of this today and you're like, like, oh gosh, it's me. What can I do about it? The Carb Compatibility Project is a four-week plan. It involves nutrition, uh, dietary strategies, lifestyle strategies, movement strategies, putting on muscle mass, moving your body, super important for metabolic health. And we got all of that packaged up in one place. I lead you through it. There's a um, weekly live Q&A, so you do get some hand-holding and some support throughout the program. And that starts January 10th. The cart is open, you can head to my brand new website, thefunctionalnutritionist.com forward slash CCP. Functional is spelt with a K just like this podcast is. And I would absolutely be honored to have you. I'm really excited about getting started this round. It is, it's going to be a good one. It's a great way to start out the year. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I would love to see you January 10th when we kick off the Carb Compatibility Project. The reason that I harp on this stuff so much is because number one, it's really important. You have probably heard me say that blood sugar dysregulation kind of puts the brakes on all your other health goals. So whether that is weight loss or um, energy, like low energy, fatigue, anxiety, uh, mood stuff, hormonal imbalance, Um, trying to think, it's a lot. Blood sugar impacts all of these things autoimmunity. Um, and so 
whether there's like a low blood sugar situation or a high blood sugar situation, both are pretty wildly inflammatory to the body. And honestly, you know, these, these conditions don't really exist in a vacuum. So it's more common that we see kind of the swings between the two. So high blood sugar and low blood sugar. So we're going to get into all of that. And it's a pretty big deal, not just because of how much it impacts in the body and how much it impacts your health overall, but because how widespread and prevalent it is. Back in 2018, there was a study that suggested only 12% of the uh, population here in the US is metabolically fit. And when I say fit, I don't mean like, ooh, like six pack. I mean like metabolically sound. So that means like 88% of us have some type of metabolic dysfunction. That's not really good. And we know, especially with the current events, the current state of the world over the past two years now, we know that this can really impact um, outcomes with the the current virus. I'm going to try not to say the big C word because I don't want to get flagged um, just because it's annoying. So even though I'm going to like quote some white papers, you know, if you mention it, you'll still get flagged. So I think we all know what I'm talking about when I talk about the big C. Um, so, I mean, that we know that that metabolic dysfunction can really impact severity um, of outcomes. And so like, that's nothing new, right? We've kind of known that for a while. So it makes good sense that we talk about this stuff um, and we have a plan of attack for ourselves of like how to get ourselves more metabolically fit. So anyway, let's talk into the specific question. I, I have my notes here. I'm going to read through the questions that came in. Um, the, the first one that I'll start with is weight loss and what do high blood sugars and insulin have to do with weight? I, my office is freezing right now, so my fingers have turned white. And I talk with my hands and I'm trying to like hide them in my pockets and warm them up. So they're going to have to come out eventually. Um, so the first thing to understand of like, what is insulin resistance? Just in case somebody doesn't understand, let's back all the way up. When we eat food, we have glucose in our blood, blood sugar. And in order for that blood sugar, that glucose to get to where it needs to go, to give us energy, to give us fuel, to provide storage, we need insulin. So as blood sugar rises in the bloodstream, insulin gets signaled to get released. And on our cells are things known as receptors. And the best way that I can wrap my head around them and describe them, it's kind of like a lock and key mechanism. So in order for something to get inside the cell, something, some signal has to dock to a receptor site and say, knock, 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 open up the door, let this thing come in. And so for glucose, that thing, that signal is insulin. So insulin tells the cells, let glucose in. If there's not enough insulin or if there's, you know, like if there's not enough insulin or the, the cells are not responding, the receptors are not responding to insulin, it won't send that message for the glucose to get inside the cell to like do its job. And so that's what we see with insulin resistance is that the receptors are resistant to insulin. And so we actually need to release more insulin for glucose to get inside the cell. So with insulin resistance, we can see high blood sugar levels, but also high insulin levels as well. And that's usually the common pattern that we see with insulin resistance. And I know that I've talked about this on or here on the show, my podcast before, but um, 
that's kind of the difference or one of the differences in approach between a functional approach and a conventional approach is how we look at blood work. And so from a conventional approach, we are waiting until there's a pathological state, until there's like a disease state, until there's like a really big problem. So we might screen for fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C and not do anything about it until somebody's in a pre-diabetic or diabetic range which is just kind of silly because this stuff is super modifiable. I want to just make that crystal clear. Blood sugar and insulin respond very well to diet, to lifestyle, to sleep, to stress, to movement. Like you can make really big, profound, impactful changes in a short period of time with this stuff. Um, So if we're waiting until, you know, we get to a diagnosable disease state, that creates more of a problem. It's harder to unpack. So one thing that I love to see in in lab work is fasting insulin because we might have normal glucose levels, but higher fasting insulin. And that is telling us that there's some degree of insulin resistance going on in the time to intervene on that is like right now. So let's get into the the actual question. I wanted to kind of give you a, a backdrop on like what the hell is insulin and why does it matter? Um, Insulin is often called a storage hormone. So those cells need to be told what to do. So there's energy coming out the cell that needs to be told what to do with the energy. And insulin is telling the cell to store energy. So it's basically taking stuff out of the blood, like taking glucose out of the blood and pushing it into storage. There's different ways that we can store glucose. We store it as glycogen in the muscle and um in the liver right that's where we store the 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 bulk of our of our glucose as glycogen but then if there's leftover we push it into triglycerides so it's stored as body fat and you know this is probably not i don't know not news to anybody right this is all like stuff we probably learned in science class but when insulin is high it's telling the body to store glucose It's telling the body to store energy. So it's pushing things into storage, but at the same time, it's also blocking us from breaking down stored glucose, from breaking down stored triglycerides and stored body fat. The the, um, term for this is lipolysis, breaking down our fat to use as energy. When insulin levels are high, it blocks this. So it shuts down those pathways. There's um, certain different you know, different things that need to happen. One is called uh, hormone-sensitive lipase. It's an enzyme that helps to take triglycerides and break them down to be utilized for energy. When insulin's high, it shuts that off. Like that's not working. So we kind of have like a double whammy where insulin's pushing things into storage and it's saying, do not break down that storage. Don't break down that storage. We don't want to use that fat for fuel. So um, this is where we can start to see weight loss resistance. And we can also see real, pretty extreme fatigue, low energy. Um, This is a very common pattern for somebody with insulin resistance because your body is not able to use fat for energy. So you feel tired and this can lead to more hunger and more cravings because we're unable to access our stored energy. And so we're kind of like the brain's kind of being like, feed me more. I need more energy. I need more energy. So we're hungry. We're tired. We're not able to convert. We're not really able to effectively utilize our fuel is what's going on. Um, and so from a weight loss perspective, we're really only to able to access and break down that stored body fat when insulin levels are low, not when insulin levels are high. So that's one of the big 
connections between insulin and weight loss and how uh, blood sugar can really impact uh, weight loss goals. So if you, one of your goals is weight loss, then it makes sense to avoid any dietary uh, any type of dietary plan that's going to spike your insulin because that's just going to continue to contribute to more fat storage, right? When insulin's high, it's a storage hormone. It's telling the body to store your fuel. Got it? Does that make sense? I see a lot of people are live here. So if that's unclear, pop something into the comments and I will uh, do my best to make it more clear. Um, so if, if, if weight loss is a goal for you, you want to avoid insulin spiking diets, you want to try to get your insulin low, like get your insulin levels in check. For people who are more insulin resistant, when they go on a weight loss diet, if they if they attempt to lose weight via diet, they are more likely to mo lose more lean body mass, so like muscle mass, and less fat mass. So even if, um, like, even if your dietary strategy is on point, you still want to make sure that those insulin levels are coming down. And that honestly, that's why the whole calories in calories out is not the whole story when it comes to weight loss. It's a part of the story is not the whole picture. Hormones really matter when it comes to weight loss. And remember, insulin is a hormone. When we talk about hormones, we tend to think of like testosterone and estrogen, but insulin is a hormone as well. And insulin, remember, it's directing the cells. It's telling the cells what to do with those, with that energy, with those calories. And if it's high, it's telling it to store it. So I'm sure the next question would be like, what is a insulin lowering dietary strategy? And it has a lot to do with carbohydrate intake. And it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody has to go on a low carbohydrate diet, but they do have to find their threshold for carbohydrates. Um, there's other, there's other, uh, dietary or there's other lifestyle strategies to get insulin low. So we'll talk about that at the end of this video as well. Um, the next question, which I thought was really great is what is the link between insulin? Oh, good. The GF pantry chick said completely clear. That's helpful feedback. Um, the link between insulin and the big C. Again, I don't want to say it because I'm going to try to put captions on it and it, it will get flagged. Um, which is just, you know, it's just annoying. It's annoying to have that, like that label there because it looks like it's, I'm like a crazy person. Um, so this is an awesome question. We've known pretty like early on that, um, the risk of severity with this virus goes up with comorbidities like metabolic dysfunction, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, type two diabetes, right? This is all like blood sugar, insulin signaling stuff. And so that's, that, that is nothing new. That's like no surprise to anybody. It, I think, and I, a lot of people in the health community are, are frustrated that this hasn't been promoted as much because again, this type of stuff is very modifiable. And, um, and I know, and I, I you know, like the, the kind of clap back on all of this becomes, well, people who are perfectly healthy with no corbit comorbidities are still getting sick. Totally. And also if like only 12% of the population is metabolically fit, that's 88% of us that is like not doing great in the, the metabolic health department too, right? So we have to kind of like unpack all of that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's been over the past two years that, that has, you know, that 
has been pretty well, well studied and well backed, but there is something new. And I thought this, this kind of answers the specific question about insulin, um, new as of October, like late October of this year. So just a couple of months ago, um, this was published in the study. I think it's the diabetes journal, diabetics journal. Um, and I learned about this through Dr. Ben Bickman. He is a PhD insulin researcher. So he kind of like knows insulin pretty well, a lot better than I do. So I'm going to attempt to explain this. I'm not a virologist. Um, I'm going to attempt to explain this in a way that I understand it and it's clear for me. So hopefully it can be clear for you too. So this article, um, if I could link it here, I totally would. I'll try to throw it in the comments. Obviously you can't link on Instagram, but I'll do my best to write the title at least. Um, it explores the link between insulin and this, this virus that we're all dealing with. And what it's, uh, what it showed is that higher insulin levels lead to a higher binding of this particular virus to adipose tissue. Um, that's just like a fancy way of saying fat cells. Um, like I was saying earlier, in order for things to get inside a cell, they have to dock to a receptor site. So the receptor site is the thing. It's like that lock and key mechanism. And it says, hey, come on in. It opens the doorway for things to get inside the cell. Viruses need this too. We were talking earlier about how glucose needs that. Viruses need it too. It, it needs a way to get inside the cell so it can infect it. And so what we know, again, not new information, what we know with this particular virus, the receptors that it requires are ACE2 receptors. That's what binds up this particular virus, ACE2 receptors. But according to this article, um, this virus also requires a stabilizing molecule. That, that molecule is called GRP78. So GRP78 is a molecule that can bind up the virus and allow it to get inside the cell, allow it to get to into those ACE2 cells. Here's the, here's the like, whoa, it's that this molecule, this GRP78 is under the control of insulin. So if we have high insulin, higher insulin levels, there's an overexpression of this particular molecule and it makes it easier for cells to bind up the virus. I don't, I thought that was really fascinating because again, we've known that there's a link here and this is one of the ways potentially, um, that it allows, you know, that, that it allows the, the virus to kind of get inside and affect, affect infect the cell, these high insulin levels. So I think we all are kind of wrapping our heads around the fact that this is probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Again, we're two years deep. So it makes good sense to start to think about our metabolic health if we have not done so already. And um, I, this, what I'm saying right now should not be antagonistic. So if you're feeling like real revved up, um, that's something to like think about because this is just kind of you know, stating facts, stating research, trying to help people like get our health house in order. And one of those things that we really got to do is consider our insulin levels, our blood sugar levels, and our metabolic, overall metabolic health. Hey, let's take a quick break so we can talk about low sugar nutrition. I'm always looking for kind of quick and dirty ways to pack in extra nutrition, polyphenols, antioxidants, fibers for my gut, and even herbs for my stress response, like the more adaptogens, the better, which is why I use Organifi powders 
every day, several times a day. I love to put them into my water. This is great if you're one of those people that struggles to just get enough hydration, get enough water. And if you feel like water is really boring, these powders can zhuzh it up for you. My kiddo loves them. She feels like she's drinking juice. I also throw them into my smoothies just as a way to get some extra nutrition. My personal favorite is the red juice. So it has lots of different red powders, things like acai, cranberry, pomegranate, strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, all of those polyphenol-rich red and blue powders. And if you've listened to the show or you've seen me on Instagram, you've heard me talk about the benefits of these powders. They feed a very unique and particular type of bacteria in your gut called Acromantia. Acromantia is a keystone player. It's wicked important for keeping your gut healthy and strong. It prevents leaky gut. It also is very important for metabolic health and insulin signaling and controlling blood sugar. Now, unfortunately, I do a lot of stool tests on people and see that acromantia is low, sometimes even below detectable limits. That's a real bummer. Some of the bacteria in our guts are little piggies. They'll eat anything. And then some bacteria are more like snobby foodies that will only eat specific things. This acromantia bacteria loves to eat red polyphenols. So the more red foods you can eat, the better. And getting red powders is super important as well. So the red juice is something that you can grab super easy and it's low sugar. All of Organifi's powders are under three grams of sugar per serving. And most of them offer up fiber as well to counteract any spike in blood sugar. So highly recommend. I throw them in my smoothie so I can pack in a bunch of veggies without adding a ton of fruit that might spike my blood sugar. And I can still make them sweet and palatable. Go to Organifi's website, Organifi.com. You can click the link in the show notes. Be sure to use the code FUNK. It will save you 20% off of every single order you ever place. You get a good deal and you get to support all the good things in your body too. The next question I'm going to get into is perimenopause. Why does perimenopause cause a lot of struggles to your metabolic health? And um, this is an awesome question. I simply do not hear this discussed enough. I feel like women going through perimenopause and menopause are like thrown to the wolves. Like, it's hard out there, huh? Um, But there is a uh, a real clear link. So I love the way that Dr. Carrie Jones describes menopause. She's like, estrogen is going on a roller coaster because you have high highs, you have low lows. Estrogen's kind of all over the place. Once we're through that, through perimenopause and we're into menopause, estrogen levels are lower. And this can really impact our overall metabolism, metabolic health, because estrogen helps to improve insulin sensitivity. Insulin sensitivity just means that those receptors are sensitive to insulin. They're able to do their job. They're like, hey, here's some insulin. I hear it. I can let glucose into the cell, peachy keen, jelly bean. Um, It's like the opposite of insulin resistance. And so um, estrogen helps an, an abundant amount or a, a normal amount of estrogen, an appropriate amount of estrogen helps with insulin signaling. Now, when estrogen goes low, that can increase insulin resistance. And 
can lead to blood sugar imbalance and metabolic dysfunction. And that is like the rub of menopause is because estrogen levels are low. And so we see, we become more insulin resistant after menopause. It's a pretty common pattern. I do a lot of blood sugar labs on folks and I see this, um, see this quite, quite often. And it's unfortunate because when we have metabolic syndrome, so this increases, the, the risk of this increases post-menopause for these reasons, but that also increases the risk of heart disease, of stroke, of, of type 2 diabetes. So it's, it's no bueno. Metabolic dysfunction is not something that we want to mess around with if we can help it, right? So of course the question is like, oh, well, shit, is this just my physiology? Like, what can I do about it? When, like in menopause, the ovaries stop making our estrogen and... It's not that we don't make any estrogen, it's just that uh, the adrenals take over and the, the fat cells can actually produce estrogen as well. A lot of women get discouraged that they feel like their metabolism has changed post-menopause and they feel like they may be gaining weight or gaining weight in places that they haven't. And more often than not, that is your body's way of like trying to help you out because the body's like, Hmm, we don't have a lot of estrogen going on. So I have a way to hold on to estrogen and to make more of it. It's through fat. And so that is one way that the body kind of like picks up the slack. Like I also said, the adrenals can make some estrogen, but because we live in such a high stress world, a lot of people have low adrenal hormones. And they're like, you know, it's not a technical term, adrenal fatigue, right? But they're just kind of like burnt out. And we, post-menopause, we kind of lose our resiliency for stress. And that's just because, well, a number of different things. But one of them is that DHEA, another adrenal hormone, is also decreasing with age. It's just kind of like a natural thing. DHEA goes down. And I consider DHEA and cortisol sort of like a yin-yang situation. So when cortisol rises, DHEA will rise with it because it helps to buffer the effects of cortisol. Cortisol is catabolic. It breaks things down, whereas DHEA is anabolic. It builds things up. So it kind of has this nice balance. But if DHEA is falling, we lose our stress resiliency as we age. And so um, that it kind of creates this perfect storm where post-menopause, I see a lot of women that have higher cortisol levels, lower DHEA levels. They have, uh, they start to get more visceral adiposity. So fat around the middle because they're trying to bring estrogen back online. It's kind of this cluster. And then on top of that, if high, they have high es- uh, insulin levels, remember what insulin's doing. It's telling everything to store, 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 store. So it's a little bit of a cycle that we have to tease out and unpack. Part of that, I'm not going to talk too, too much about the hormonal piece. Uh, part of that is obviously supporting hormones and really being super mindful about stress. The other part of that is thinking about dietary strategies to bring down insulin. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go on a low carbohydrate diet or start fasting. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but you do need to be mindful of the fact that you might be less sensitive to insulin. And so your macronutrients might need to change a little bit. This is exactly what I do in the carb compatibility project. It's not like I'm just throwing everybody on a ketogenic diet and be like, good luck out there. We are specifically going through a very, um, like a method to figure out what is your threshold for carbohydrate intake. It's all about supporting metabolic health and insulin. 
And so we do post-menopause, you are going to be less sensitive to insulin. So you might need to tweak your diet a little bit in order to support um, insulin signaling. There's other strategies we'll talk about more in depth um, in the carb compatibility project, but strength training, building muscle is so important for insulin, just moving your body in general. Movement is medicine and it really helps with insulin signaling, um, supporting gut health, making sure you're feeding your uh, microbi- microbiome plenty of fibers and um, things that those bacteria need to thrive. Our microbiome, our gut health really makes a pretty big, big impact on our insulin and our metabolic health as well. Again, these are strategies that we'll talk about in the CCP. Another thing that I want to throw out there, it it's kind of fits this question, is that it is um, very common for women as they age, especially like after 40. I'm 37. So like when I say as they age, it's like, kind of mean. Um, but like 40 and, and later, it's very common for women to deal with gallbladder issues. And another thing to keep in mind is that insulin can promote gallstone formation. So if we have higher levels of insulin, this can really impact, um, uh, gallstones. And so that's something that a lot of women deal with. So if you are somebody who has struggled with, gallbladder issues or gallstones really consider your metabolic health as well. That's part of the overall picture. Okay. Final question that I'll get to here. Um, somebody wrote after intermittent fasting for a year, my labs came back as me being pre-diabetic. Doesn't intermittent fasting regulate sugars? Um, intermittent fasting can be a tool to support metabolic health in some people. I wouldn't go as far as saying it regulates blood sugars. Historically, or typically speaking, again, I've seen a lot of labs, a lot of hormone labs, a lot of blood sugar labs. For menstruating women, I do not see intermittent fasting being super helpful and beneficial. I see it causing more problems than it solves. And I know people get so pissed off when I say this. This is just feedback based on what I see in clinic. You are an N equals one experiment. So if it works for you, do your thing, mommy. Like I I have no problem with fasting. I am all for people like getting, gathering up tools that work for you. That's awesome. What I see is that it doesn't really work that great. Intermittent fasting or any type of fasting is a stressor to the body. And it can be, if you have like, if your health house like kind of isn't in order, if you have poor metabolic health and you just jump into fasting, that can be pretty traumatic for the body. That can be, um, that can cause a lot of stress in the body. One of my mentors said, um, if we can balance blood sugar, if we can implement dietary strategies to support blood sugar regulation before attempting intermittent fasting, it makes fasting a lot less traumatic, which kind of implies that if you're not doing that, then intermittent fasting can be traumatic for the body. So I am not shocked to hear this, unfortunately. I think this is a great question and I'm very sorry that this happened to you because you're like, yo, I'm doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing and it's not working, right? I'm I'm now pre-diabetic. The good news is pre-diabetic is an awesome time to um, make some big time changes. Um, obviously fasting wasn't working, working for you as you thought it would in this season of your life. So I would really do is 
dial in um, different dietary strategies. And so for some people, for some women, going super low carb or fasting is just too, 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 too much. So doing a plan like the Carb Compatibility Project can help you kind of like tiptoe your way in, in a way that supports your stress. But we also have to think about other things that impact blood sugar. So stress is a big one. Stress is a very, very big one. It's not talked about a lot. If you've ever worn a continuous glucose monitor or you've tracked your blood sugar levels, um, you can see in real time, like, oh shit, I'm stressed out and my blood sugar is like all over the place. It really does impact it. Sleep is a big one. Um, getting like eight hours of sleep every night, huge for metabolic health. Movement, like I talked about, putting on muscle mass, moving your body, supporting the gut. And then also, again, auditing that carbohydrate intake is, is gonna be really important too. But I, I would say that it's not shocking to me that um, that intermittent fasting kind of created too much chaos in your body um, because I see that happening quite a bit. So we really focused on higher levels of blood sugar today. Tomorrow I'm going to swoop back in and I'm going to talk about hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, getting hangry, getting mad, getting irritable. Why is that happening? What can you do about it? That's on doc for tomorrow. All right, my friends, have a great day. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.